Thank you all for having me. It's, um, it's been a very warm welcome. I enjoy speaking actually in churches. I get very warm welcomes. It's uh, a big contrast to how I get treated online. Maybe that should have been my opener tomorrow. Uh, I actually want to tell you a different welcoming that I had recently to kind of start here today. I recently had the distinct pleasure, if we can use that word, to speak at Northwestern University, which is one of the most elite colleges in this country. Um, they told me while I was there that I should at no point be more than maybe 10 to 15 feet away from armed security while on campus, not to go on campus by myself, uh, all kinds of fun things. We snuck in through a back door, snuck out through a back door, got driven by back ways immediately off campus back to the hotel. They told me also that, uh, that there are about 100 conservative students on campus out of about 8,600 students total. So the conservative students there are outnumbered about 85 to 1 which is a pretty bad ratio. And as it turns out, the student government there uh, offered to pay students back for their trouble, for their materials, if they protested me when I spoke. And that's why we had to have armed security. And so a couple of hundred students showed up, they had signs, they yelled, did the whole thing outside. And to my kind of surprise, um, given that it, you, know, you really should let people into here on a college campus, they let them in to come listen to my talk. My talk was on the same thing that I'm talking about tonight, which is American Maoism. And what I wanted to do was make the case that this thing that we call intersectionality, which is a lot of fancy syllables today, is American Maoism. And so I was talking about Mao. Now you just heard all day today, if you were here through the afternoon, you heard all day today about how, uh, if I might be sarcastic around a dictator, how wonderful Mao was. And at different points in the speech, I would bring up Mao and the woke students, almost all of whom were wearing masks and hats and sunglasses and things, even though we were inside in the evening, would cheer for Mao. They would cheer for Mao. They, these are American college students in 2023 cheering for Mao. They know who they're cheering for. They know what they're cheering for. They know what they support. And uh, that was an interesting experience to, to see that. I encouraged them, I'm a very encouraging person, I encouraged them to cheer for their dictator. And they did. They responded, they clapped, they hooted, they hollered, they cheered. And uh, it was kind of shocking to, to see it firsthand. I also warned them, and I'll bring up later what their fate is for having taken up with this side. Mao, as you heard earlier, got rid of his red guard and the woke guard will get gotten rid of as well. Uh, at which point they laughed at me. And so I said, laugh all you want, I'm right. And so this has been a much better welcome. <laughs> but you should know that American college students in significant numbers openly know that they're supporting American Maoism. So this is not some conspiracy theory. This isn't something that, you know, I've just kind of put together. This isn't something that these uh, survivors of Mao's regime are coming out and spouting off so they can get fame and fortune, because that's, I'm sure, what their experience has been so far, is fame and fortune everywhere they go, uh, become darlings of the conservative right. That's what they're accusing. I don't know if you know who uh, Yomi Park is. She's a defector, a survivor from North Korea. And she's spoken up in the media. The New York Times went after her saying that she is a darling of right-wing conservative causes and that her story's trumped up and fake and they're really actually running cover for North Korea in the New York Times right now to try to put her down. Because that's what it actually means to speak up against the American Maoism that's happening in our country. 
And so we just learned about how bad he was. Well, the college students support this not wholly ignorantly. Just telling them that this is what they're supporting is not going to work because just like in the 1960s when they chanted Marx, Mao, Marcuse behind their, their radical agenda, these kids understand that uh, when I ch said that the chant was Marx, Mao, Marcuse, they cheered for that too. Uh, so they know what they're, they're here to uh, support, which makes our, 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 our issue more urgent, more serious, more real. So I'm here to talk about American Maoism tonight. Uh, you've heard about Maoism all day. You've heard about the parallels. I'm sure if you were here listening, you felt the parallels. You are very keenly aware when you start to hear what happened in Mao's China that what's happening in America is what happened in Mao's China, but now with what we might call American characteristics. And I'm grateful for these other speakers, Lily and she, particularly for bringing those things up in such vivid ways so that um, you are more familiar with the concepts I'm going to talk about tonight as I go into them. Uh, the major problem here is that many of you probably had never heard those things before. I certainly didn't. I had never heard anything about Mao except that he was, you know, Chairman Mao of China. That's all I heard. I knew he was a dictator. Graduated college in the United States, went through American high schools, graduated college, had no idea anything because we suffer what I call redwashed education in this country. We don't have whitewashed education, it's been redwashed. We don't learn about the history of communism. We don't learn about the truth of communism. We don't learn about the atrocities of communism. It's a major problem. So before I talk about this though, I have three lectures to give at this conference, one each, or one tonight, one tomorrow night, one in the afternoon uh, the next day. I wanna have a single framing for all three lectures, which is given the nature of this conference maybe a little bit challenging. But uh, I want you to understand that what we see with Maoism is a very successful progressive leftist operation. And the key word of that was operation. This is a tactical maneuver. Mao didn't begin, but he took power in 1949, so the CCP has ruled China for 74 years. To give you some idea that when we say that it's not just you, but your children and your children's children and their children as well that might suffer if we don't stand up and stop our own cultural revolution, that's real. The CCP is in its 74th year and does not show any particular, 74th year of power, not of existing as a party. And it doesn't show any signs in the immediate term of stopping or going away. So it could be a long ride. Our, our children and our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren's future and liberty are at stake here. But this is an operation, and so the first thing that you need to know and the framing I want to give for all of my lectures is that leftism in general, progressive leftism in particular, is operational and intentional. It has an operating system just like my computer, and that's got a fancy name. I'm going to use two big words on you here at the beginning. I promised uh, some of the folks that there wouldn't be so many big words and the hard concepts at this, so then I put them right at the beginning <laughs> so that they'll think I'm a liar. Uh, it has an operating system called the dialectic. And so I'll unpack that for you in a second. And it uses this dialectical operating system, it means a method of doing things, just like the way your computer works. It has a method of operation. You put in your stuff, if you want to go to a website, you want to do whatever you want to do on your computer. It has a way that your computer works. There's a system, an operating system that makes it work that way. And if it's a Windows machine, it works one way. If it's a Linux machine, it works one way. If it's an Apple machine, it works a different way. They all work different ways. It's the operating system. Leftism, progressive leftism, has an operating system called the dialectic. 
The rest of us don't tend to use that operating system, so it's like looking at an alien world. And that gives them a huge strategic advantage in what they do with it. Because they have an operating system, we don't know how it works. They can write computer viruses if we stick with that metaphor for our computers, but we can't do anything to theirs. We can't hack into their systems. We can't put a virus back on their machines because we don't know how they work. So if we understand dialectical thinking and the dialectic as an operating system, we can change that and then we can start to beat them. We don't keep losing ground or playing defense. We can go on offense. Uh, but they use this to do the other big concept, which is a type of unconventional warfare known as political warfare. So those are the two big terms, dialectical, political warfare. So the two are political warfare and dialectic. So political warfare is the simpler of the two to understand. It's the most important concept you have probably never heard of. Uh, there was an assessment done at some point in the 90s by uh, the Chinese military, and from what I understand also maybe the Soviets or ex-Soviets, that assessed in, by the 1990s that the American capacity to understand political warfare was so degraded so that it may as well not exist. When we think of warfare, we think of airplanes and bombs and tanks and guns and artillery and howitzers and M16s or AR-15s or whatever else that you're not allowed to have. And this is a totally different animal. This is political warfare. But it can be learned and it can be operated on in countermeasures. We can go on offense within political warfare and we can win. We can defeat their political warfare. In fact, this is fairly simplistic and stupid once you understand it. Political warfare is using political tactics to get your opponent to do what you want with a hostile intent so that you can defeat them. A propaganda campaign is a great example. You can get them to believe the wrong thing. The goal is to compel your opponent to believe the wrong thing and act the wrong way to get them to do what you want them to do so that they make mistakes that you can capitalize upon. The most familiar example of all is the one I just mentioned, it's propaganda. Propaganda is flooding the information space in various different ways to get you to believe something that's not true. Maybe that you think that you've been attacked, but you think the wrong person attacked you. So you're paying attention to one enemy when actually your enemy is over here. They made you believe the other person hit you. Uh, you know, when you go up and around somebody and you tap them on the other shoulder, and they look the wrong way, and they oh, hey, you know, like that. That is sort of this idea of misdirection. Propaganda can make you believe all kinds of things, like that you shouldn't leave your house or you'll kill grandma for two years. Propaganda can get you to believe that there were 81 million votes cast for the most charismatic president we've ever had. Propaganda can get you to believe that whatever the current thing is, is something you have to argue about. Propaganda can get you to believe that there is systemic racial injustice that's so rife throughout this country that we have to reorganize all of our systems and change all of our ways of living and being to correct it. Propaganda can get you to believe that it is compassionate and care, medical care, to sterilize children. Get them to cut off their own genitals. This is political warfare. It's a huge component of what gets called fifth generational warfare, which is much more about information war than it is about actual kinetic war. You don't have to use guns or bombs, the famous remark from Khrushchev, and the Soviet Union was that they will take America without firing a single shot. Well, he understood that they would use political warfare tactics to do that. Cultural revolutions, or what we call the culture war, are fought with political warfare. 
This thing we call the culture war is a cultural revolution. It's only a war because we woke up and are fighting back. That's all that's going on, and this is all political warfare. So like I said, it's the most important concept you've probably never heard of, and it's using political and information tactics to get your opponent to do what you want them to do with a hostile intent behind it. That's all it is, a simpler concept. Dialectics, on the other hand, I'll try to keep this short. I put it in my notes in italics with an exclamation mark, try to keep this short. Dialectics is not really easy to understand, so I'm not gonna go into the whole history of it. I did some lectures in the past talking about the dialectic, something like six lectures that are two hours long each or something. You're more than welcome to go dive into those. I did those also at another church, um, and those are a little on the challenging side. Dialectics is complicated and difficult to understand, so I'm going to make it really simple. We're going to do Dialectics 101. We're not going to jump to the senior level or graduate level of dialectics class. Dialectics in a single idea is marrying truth to a lie. Everything else past that is more complicated and you don't really need to know it. It's how do you take a piece of truth and a lie and put them into holy or unholy matrimony. That's what dialectics is. How do you add a little bit of false to something true so that you can do something with it to transform a situation? That's their magic word, transform. There are other names for this. Social alchemy is one. Fertile fallacies are one. It's a fallacy, it's a lie but it's fertile in that it'll catch on and people will believe it and run with it. These are names given to a simple idea that you're mixing a truth and a lie. Think of how many things that you've read from leftists in their narratives and the media or whatever else, or you see it on the news or you hear it or whatever else, and you know it's really frustrating because you know what they said is true if you look at it the wrong way, but it's not what anybody means. That's dialectics. It's actually very formally mixing a little bit of whatever is not into whatever is and trying to say that it's part of the same thing. That's literally what the idea is. If you go back to Hegel, who's kind of the master of formulating dialectics in a systematic way in the West, he said that the most ultimate example is that there's being, everything that is, but then there's nothing and they're not actually opposites, they're in a relationship. So you have to mix nothing and being together and you get becoming out of that. And he's created this synthetic idea of becoming out of the idea of that which is. So you've mixed is and is not and you come up with some BS that you trick people into thinking that's the way the world really works. And philosophers, when they see this, are going to be very upset that I've characterized it this way, so it's probably true. What they are creating is a synthetic view. That is their word for it. You've maybe heard of this if you've read any of the philosophy. It's, they call it the thesis, the idea that you have that's the is. And then there's its antithesis, its opposite, that which is not. And they come together to create a synthesis. They literally call it synthetic reality. Um, they sometimes call it actuality instead of reality. We live in reality. We live in reality, right? But the way we understand reality is what's actual, what has been made to come true. And so... While synthetic is their technical word, the word that we should use for the product of the dialectic is contrived. It is contrived reality. It is reality on a new basis, on a false basis that advances their ability to do political warfare. The way that the dialectic allegedly works, and this is where the diagram comes up, is a spiral through history. You have the the one side of the argument, you have the other side of the argument, and you spiral around. So you don't go in circles this, 
The other thing, this, the other thing, the thing in its opposite, the thing in its opposite. Every time you go back and forth, side to side, you move up a little bit. And you spiral up in a tighter and tighter circle as the contradictions between is and is not get resolved to a point that sometimes has been called the omega point, the end point of history. There's actually a book Francis Fukuyama wrote in 1989 called The End of History and the Last Man. The last man is the dialectical completion of man. It's the man that lives when history itself has been completed, at which point there's no more political conflict because everything's been made perfect. Religious people would recognize what this is as an eschaton, as an end to history, an end of time. It is eschatological as a religion. It has an end times program, and their job is to drive the spiral and use it to create political movement in the direction they think history moves so that they can get to the end point of history. In other words, so they can bring the end of the world upon us and enter what they consider to be the kingdom of God here on earth, to quote from a Marxist named Henry Giroux. That is what their objective is. The way that this works, you see on the graphic, if you can read it, I know the print is small, is you have horizontal dialectical movement between opposites and vertical dialectic of whole and parts. So what they actually do is they move through conflict. Opposites are things that are in conflict with one another. And they say that the conflict binds those two things together so they're actually two parts of one thing. And they use that to move things forward in the direction of their, politi of their political agendas. As a matter of fact, what they believe is that opposites are illusions. In the perfect world, the perfect, whether heaven or whatever they call it, the pleroma, there are no distinctions between anything. There's just God, the absolute, completely whole and undifferentiated. There are no parts. Everything is in perfect unity. But in the fallen material world that we live in, because this is a religion, it's a cult religion, they believe that we have the appearance of things that are in opposition to one another because we don't understand how they're truly unified on a higher spiritual level of unification. So their goal is to bring the conflict up until we synthesize some BS contrived understanding of how they're the same thing. What do I mean? Well, man and woman could be seen as opposites, but if we start to introduce the idea that men can be women and women can be men, and sometimes, and sometimes they're neither because they're non-binary, all of a sudden it all gets mixed up and now you just have people. We heard that in China that they had that. I've seen, actually I've been to Beijing and I've seen uh, murals painted on the sides of buildings and I, I can't read the Mandarin, but I was told that what they read and it looks like it, but the picture that they had fits. It says, man, woman, boy, girl, we are all the same. We are all the same. You dialectically take opposites and say, no, that's just an illusion. This is the hermetic cult. This is hermeticism, which is a form of uh, cult belief, wizardry, that is um, not exactly held up with positive views in the Bible, for those of you that are worried about that. So when it gets brought into the church, that's called heresy. What it believes about opposites is that opposites are actually the same in kind but different in degree. That's literally called the principle of polarity in the hermetic religion. Same in kind, basically the same thing. How many leftist arguments start with basically, basically that thing you're doing and the thing I'm doing are the same thing. Basically, if you stand up to me, then you're doing intersectionality too. Wouldn't you say that if you're saying the left is wrong that you're still doing divisive things? 
Doesn't that feel like how they argue? They're saying that these two things are basically lived experience is like a different kind of evidence. So what we do is a different kind of science based on a different way of knowing, but it's still ways of knowing. You kind of get that feeling from them. They say this kind of stuff all the time. Differences aren't real. And if you squint real hard, I guess, and twist your brain into a pretzel where they're in charge of you, things can be kind of the same from what they call a higher perspective. The name Marxists give that is sublation. It is raising up to a higher level so that you no longer see differences as the same. You have a red apple, you have a green apple, well, they're both apples. Well, you bring in an orange, well, they're all fruit. And what you actually see is what's happening is that they're blurring out the specifics in our categories so that things are all the same. You know, like, it doesn't really matter, love is love. Which is like, okay, fine, LGBT, whatever. Love is love, adults, consenting adults, okay, I'll give you that. Kids. Oh, love is love. Is it? Is it? They blur out the context so that different things, so that our ability to comprehend the world around us and make judicious and wise and prudent and moral decisions becomes impossible. They remove the context that's, that's necessary to understand how things are different from one another, like the difference between men, women, boy, girl, so adult and child, male and female, and get you to believe it's all part of the same thing. Science, lived experience, eh, same thing. So the goal is for them to repeatedly induce political conflict over and over and over again that achieves this higher perspective repeatedly until they get to where there's no more distinctions and we're all just one and everybody's happy. And that's actually literally the program that communism is promising is how it's going to rescue the world. So the idea is that in the dialectic is that the opposites create each other. You can't have is without is not. You can't have heterosexual without homosexual. You can't have male without female. The opposites create each other, but what that means is they're actually intrinsically united. They're two parts of the same thing. So we can actually transcend the illusion of division. That's the dialectic. See, when I said it was easier to understand it, it's marrying truth to a lie. Yeah, 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 we are all people, that's true. We are all human beings, that's right. That is actually true, we are all human beings. But it turns out that those distinctions matter a lot. The distinctions between man and woman matter a lot. The distinctions between adult and child matter a lot. Especially in the directions that they often want to take those things. They actually believe that God is the state that becomes real in the world when we obliterate all the distinctions. When it's anything goes, because all the distinctions are removed, Good and evil, right and wrong, man and woman, God and man. When you obliterate all the distinctions, God actualizes, and we actually live in the kingdom. That's what their synthetic world is all about, and it all boils down to marrying a truth to a lie, or that thing that you do and the perverted thing that we want to do in its name are really the same thing. That's the dialectic. And what it is done, what it's used to do is to create a cult. You have to understand that that's the point. Why would you remove distinctions so you can remove understanding? Whose understanding? Yours. So who do you, how do you understand the world around you? How do you make sense of the world? Well, you have to defer to an expert. One of the cult leaders has to tell you. So you guys thought it was just maybe scary or maybe funny or maybe whatever. Everybody thought this. Nobody really has, they're starting to grasp it. But the point, when you had my senator, Marsha Blackburn, grilling Kentanji Brown Jackson before she was appointed to the Supreme, or was confirmed to the Supreme Court. And she said, what is a woman? And Kentanji Brown Jackson said, I don't know, I'm not a biologist. Turns out she did make a mistake. She chose the wrong kind of expert. A gender studies professor would have been the right answer. But what she said 
in truth is I can't make a basic determination about fundamental reality for myself. I have to ask a cult leader. The cult tells me what a man is and what a woman is. I can't tell for myself. And these people that we call experts are the people who are given the power in that cult to tell us what reality is. We are not able to make those decisions for ourselves. So guess what that makes us? Dependent on people who have arbitrary power to determine how we understand the world, which is exactly what totalitarians and particularly communists do all the time. The truth is what Mao says the truth is. The truth is what Hitler says the truth is. The truth is which whichever dictator says the truth is. I have to ask a biologist to know what I have in between my legs. And if you make that joke as the response, they'll say, you're so focused on genitals, so now you're the bad person, when in fact, I don't think we are the ones that are that focused on genitals. I think we would all like to stop talking about them all the time. I don't think in my entire life I ever wanted to have to have conversations with other adult human beings about the genitals of children because certain people have decided that cutting them off is a great way to deal with their mental illness. I never wanted to have to do that. I don't think any of us did. So their goal is to create a cult where the people who are in the party are the ones who understand and have the power to dictate what reality is to everybody else, and you do not have that power. You are dependent on them to understand the world around you. This tends to get bent on things like collectivism and world domination. That's what communism really comes down to. But it's not just that. The general term for this, I said that this was progressive leftism. It is actually progressive socialism when you try to use a, this dialectical political warfare strategy to take over the world and get everybody on the same kind of political program. It's all socialism. The Nazis call themselves not national socialists for a reason. So when you have what you might consider, and these words are virtually obsolete now, but you have left-wing progressive socialists, we call those people communists, and when you have right-wing progressive socialists, those people are called fascists. And that's the simple truth. What they have in common is that they are progressive socialists, which are to the left of everybody else in society by a long way. So it's imagine like you go all the way off to the left and there's a left-wing and a right-wing in that. That's the difference between Nazis and communists. It's that simple. So dialectical political warfare is using this dialectical thing, mixing a truth and a falsehood, mixing, marrying a lie to the truth in order to advance its political warfare tactics, its political agenda, to install basically some form of totalitarian control and probably socialism because they want to use that power to transform history into what they believe they know it was always meant to be. In other words, they think they've had a view of the kingdom of God here on earth and they have a divine order to make it with us, and anybody who doesn't want to participate in that is a major problem. And they use primarily tools like propaganda, narrative control, framing out the story so nobody can understand clearly who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, and other psychological dynamics as tactics of warfare to take over countries. And they've taken over many in the past. China is perhaps the most uh, glaring and important example at the present moment, but I mentioned North Korea, we know Soviet Union, you could talk about the Eastern Bloc, Cuba, Venezuela, we could talk about a lot of places, we could talk about Brazil right now. What they do though is it's very much like casting a spell, they typically tell a story through what we might call a narrative arc, they tell you how the world is actually working, they lay out the story of how it works, and then they go and find pieces of evidence to contrive into getting people to believe that's how the world really works. What's an example of that? 
Well, the police brutality against blacks is growing and growing and growing and growing and growing, and suddenly George Floyd dies, and we have to say their names, Breonna Taylor and all the others, so nobody can remember. Because it was all contrived. Their names don't matter. But George Floyd died, and everybody on earth now believes that policing is inherently racist. They made a narrative arc about policing being racist, and they found pieces of evidence to make people suddenly believe that that must be true and we must, be, must do something about it right away. And they advanced their political agenda, that's the vertical direction, by saying what we're going to do about it. So they create the problem and a reaction, and then they derive a solution that drives us toward their political program. That's exactly what happened to us in 2020. It's exactly what's happened to us repeatedly since. We've seen it again with uh, COVID, we saw it with George Floyd, we saw it with the Ukraine conflict, and we see it uh, on social media every day with whatever the stupid new issue of the day is. I think today it's that women wearing frilly dresses or pretty dresses is white supremacy or something. No kidding, I saw that this morning. Apparently leftists noticed that sometimes girls are pretty and it made them mad. But this is ultimately, this progressive ambition to guide the world through this spiral of conflict to where they think it's supposed to be is what unites communists and fascists under one banner. It's why they're actually cousins. They're not really opposites. They're not actually at war with one another like they claim and act like they are. They're two sides of one coin, which is progressive socialism. And they have the same mechanism, is that they use dialectical political warfare to advance their agenda. So each side actually helps the other side gain power in the next step as it spirals toward no more sides. And then everybody else, all us normal people who want no part of this, who care about things like liberty and freedom and individual rights, we're not even people. We just get pushed off to the wayside. We either join one side or the other or we're actually irrelevant and maybe need to be disposed of. And so I'm going to switch to talking about Mao now that I've talked about the framing overall, which is dialectical political warfare, uh, but I want to start talking about Mao by quoting Hitler. I just learned the hard way that you're not allowed to quote Hitler, because apparently it means you're supporting him, like every history book in the world apparently must support Hitler now, because they quote him. But I'm going to quote Hitler so you can see actually that I'm not kidding, they are the same program. So a lot of you probably have not read Mein Kampf, but this is from Mein Kampf, which was Hitler's um, raging autobiography, and he says, thus I finally discovered who were the evil spirits leading our people astray. You guys know who he meant. The sojourn in Vienna for one year had proved long enough to convince me that no worker is so rooted in his preconceived notions that he will not surrender them in the face of better and clearer arguments and expectation, or explanations. See, the workers will listen. Gradually, he says, and this is the key part, Gradually, I became an expert in the doctrine of the Marxists and used this knowledge as an instrument to drive home my own firm convictions. I was successful in nearly every single case. So the great masses can be rescued, but a lot of time and a large share of human patience must be devoted to such work. So Adolf Hitler in Mein Kampf explains that he wasn't successful in convincing normal people to buy his program until he started using the tools of the Marxists. He learned from and borrowed from the tools of the Marxists, which is progressive leftist dialectical political warfare. When he started doing dialectical political warfare, that's when his rise to power truly began. They are the same thing. The key takeaway then is that dialectical political warfare, which is the fundamental doctrine of Marxists, works. But it only works for evil purposes. They'll tell you that it's for good, but 
obviously they live in a world turned upside down as we heard earlier and so good and bad are inverted or switched. Good and evil don't mean anything to them. It's only for evil. So the greatest dialectical political warfare tactician in history was not Adolf Hitler, it was Mao Zedong in China. So because we have red-washed history, Americans don't know a lot about Mao. You guys are way ahead of the curve after listening to the speeches today, um, but I'm gonna give a little bit of a Mao history lesson. It's gonna be really brief. Um, but since we have this red-washed education, let me just make a point. One of the most valuable things every state can do, you guys can push for this in Florida for sure, you have a very receptive state to this, but every state, I think every state, all 50, the bluest of the blue ones too, any conservative worth their salt should put forward the idea and push at the, at the level of the legislature, at the level of their state departments of education, that the schools, K through 12, have mandatory anti-communist education, K through 12. When Virginia tried this, the Democrats went berserk. Every one of them voted against it, so they didn't get it, and they launched a propaganda campaign in the media saying that it would cause anti-Asian hate to teach people like Mao and Pol Pot and the, the Kim family in, in North Korea that would cause people to hate Asians. So we can't, we, we can't make Asian racism by teaching the histories of communism, so we can't do it. That was their excuse. That's obviously nonsense, by the way. You can defeat them by making them double down on stupid positions, like we don't want to teach kids about the truth of communism. That's a terrible thing, people see that. You can defeat them this way. Get them to own a terrible position and give a stupid excuse for why they have to keep it. You get them flustered and they say something dumb, like that it would cause anti-Asian hate to teach the history of communism, which by the way, if you didn't notice, started in like Germany, <laughs> not China. So we should be pushing for that in every state. We want to know how your legislators are going to vote on that. We want to know who's going to speak up against that. We want to expose them. We're going to come back to that in my, my third lecture about how, to, how important it is to expose them. But that's something you should be thinking about. We don't know about Mao, though, because we don't know about communist history because we don't have that yet. And so we really want to push for anti-communist legislation in every single state for, for education. So the CCP from the 1920s forward is really the, the relevant story. The CCP started in China in the 1920s. It started in America, by the way, it wasn't the CCP, it's the uh, CPUSA, Communist Party USA. It started in 1919, if you wonder how long they've been here working on us. 104 years they've been working on us. And it used something in the 1920s and 1930s, kind of like critical race theory that we see here in America today, but in a different way. What they were trying to do was kind of break down their rival parties. They wanted to break them down in, internally, get them in conflict internally, to divide and conquer, to make them broken down. So they unleashed the idea. What was going on was they had a nationalist party called the Guomindang in China that was in charge under Chiang Kai-shek, and they wanted to break that down. So they actually started to infiltrate, and they started to bring in this idea that what they had done is unified China under a single people. They called Huarun. It means Chinese people. So they wanted to, to say that what actually that means, by the way, there are 56 racial or ethnic groups in China. What they said is, well, the Han racial group is the biggest, or the ethnic group is the biggest. So when they say Chinese people, what they really mean is Han people. And all the rest of you have to give in to Han supremacy. And so they started to agitate those racial minority groups to be angry at the Han Chinese and to cause division within the Nationalist Party. It's not a real Chinese nation because they don't really value you. And this was actually a deliberate program. At the same time in the United States, 1920s and 1930s, they were launching racial initiatives to try to create black nationalism in the United States to try to get the South to, to, to cut off from the U.S. 
as a matter of fact. The Great Depression, in fact, may have saved us from that communist infiltration in the U.S. because so many southern blacks went to northern cities to get factory jobs in the wake of the Great Depression. And no longer could you possibly have a bunch of people of one mind all in one place or of one kind all in one place and a bunch of people of a different kind somewhere else and then segregate the country and break it apart, which was the communist strategy in the U.S. in the 20s and 30s. But they did this to break power down in the Guomingdong, in the Nationalist Party in, in China as well, to, to break down the idea of national unity that might hold that together. Now it had its own problems. It was corrupt. It had its own issues. Um, not standing up for the Guomingdong, but I wanted to point out the CCP was actually using similar tactics and the Communist Party USA were using early tactics similar to what became critical race theory in order to divide those countries, ours and theirs, in the 1920s and 1930s. In 1946, the Peasants' Revolt under Mao actually began. So after he kind of weakened the, the Nationalist Party, he actually launched a military coup. You already heard earlier how that works. He promised the peasants lots of free stuff, free land, free all this other stuff if they went to war for him. And in 1946, he launched a revolution that concluded in October of 1949 and after consolidating CCP, CCP power uh, for those years through the 40s and 50s, up, or, sorry, 30s and 40s up to that point. He consolidated power and he launched this, this revolution and he actually took power in a military coup in 1949. The way that he had the power to do that was not just promising the peasants free stuff, he first created party unity. He created lots of uh, unity to the cause and kicked out anybody who wasn't going to be loyal to his cause and built up an army loyal to his promise of giving, giving them free stuff. Um, but like I said, this gives the CCP since 1949 almost 74 years, which is longer than the USSR lasted. The USSR lasted for just over 69 years, not quite 70. So the CCP has had a long run. We could also end up in a long run of tyranny. This isn't like maybe they win and two years later we're out of this mess. This could be curtains for the United States and for the West. One of the first things, as you heard, Mao was very, very uh, aware that if you want to control a population and you want to secure it for the future, you better indoctrinate the kids. So he took over education immediately. His, one of his bigger initiatives in 1950 was, in fact, to fire all the teachers and send them out and indoctrinate and brainwash them into the socialism and communism that he was preaching. And you didn't get back in until he was convinced, until his people were convinced, the party was convinced that you were up on the ideology. Only communists were allowed back in and it took till about 1952 to clean out uh, all of education. And in that way, he captured the schools and turned them into indoctrination mills, which for 15 to 17 years indoctrinated every child into Maoist-style Marxism, every child in China that they could get their hands on. And in particular, not only did they introduce them into, or indoctrinate them into the ideas of socialism and the kind of economics and political and, and social theory of communism, they also taught what you might call a friend-enemy distinction. There are friends, the people that support the party, and there are enemies, the people who are against the party. Is that kind of simple? You are to support your friends and hate your enemies. And he actually openly taught hate. You hate your enemies. They are the enemies of the people. This is the people's revolution. This is the people's Republic of China, and you are to hate enemies of the people who are holding us back from having national unity that way. And he taught this friend-enemy distinction to every single child that he could get his hands on in China, which within a few years was all of them. It took longer to get out to the more remote parts in the countryside. It was the 1950s. 
1957, he had mostly consolidated his power. He'd gone through a few phases of what he called the revolution. They were now in the phase of what they call building socialism. And he launched something that was called the 100 Flowers Campaign. Let 100 flowers bloom. In other words, let's talk freely. Let's criticize what the CCP could be doing better so we can get better. Allegedly, Mao firmly believed, maybe he was a mastermind tactician and maybe not, but from what I understand from historians, he actually believed that socialism was so true and so valid that it would certainly win any argument, so we'll just actually have free speech. This was actually turned into massive criticism of this rumbling catastrophe that he was running. And so after not very long, he decided to shut down the free speech and he turned it into a anti-rightist campaign. Anybody who brought out any criticisms of the party got rounded up and silenced or sent to prisons to be brainwashed or sent to the countryside or got, got rid of, got liquidated or killed. And it turned into a gigantic purge of right-wing thought where people spent time criticizing the party and he got rid of everybody who did that later. Um, like I said, he probably didn't mean it strategically to be a purge, maybe he did, but certainly anybody who would do such a thing now definitely knows how it works, and they're using a free speech opportunity to take advantage of you to find out who their enemies are. On the back of this purge, now everybody knows, don't open your mouth, <laughs> really don't open your mouth. It will cost you and your family everything. He came up with this brilliant program to launch China to the head of the industrial world called the Great Leap Forward. You heard this earlier also, steel and wheat production were going to go through the roof, but he did it in the most backwards way possible. It was a complete catastrophe. A lot of people died. Estimates vary, but it, reliable estimates put it between 50 and 60 million people died in the, uh, the murders to, to implement it and the famine that resulted, the Great Famine. It ruined the Chinese economy uh, so badly that they made him step down from office. Uh, really not a good leap forward. We have a great reset. We're not even trying to leap forward now. We're trying to leap backwards. We're not trying to grow our steel production and food production. We're trying to enter into degrowth, they call it. We're not even trying to leap forward and fail. We're trying to actually leap backwards and we'll still fail. And that's a very important parallel. But he was forced to step down in 1962. Oh, sorry, yeah, 1962 when that failed. He was succeeded, as you heard earlier, by Liu Xiaoqi. He became Mao's, immediately in taking power, became Mao's chief political rival, and so he had to get his power back. Um, so Mao's crap about the good of the party wasn't really true, because that wasn't necessarily good for Mao. Somebody else was the boss. And so he launched in 1966, using all these indoctrinated kids, he activated them into the Red Guard to go out and regain his power, to depose his enemies in the CCP, and to do what's now called the Cultural Revolution. The Great Cultural Revolution where we're gonna smash the four olds. We'll send out the young people to smash every bit of old culture and to take any dissident and publicly humiliate them or beat them or embarrass them or anything else and do these things called struggle sessions, which were also happening in his prisons for the previous 15 years. It's how you brainwash somebody. You put them under severe psychological and social duress to try to get them to confess and recognize their crimes on the terms of the socialist program. That succeeded. She did a great job explaining earlier, Li Xiaoqi got rounded up and also president of CCP, no big deal, rounded him up too, humiliated him over and over again, sent him to die in misery in the countryside in primitive conditions uh, in late 1967. And so in 1968, what did Mao do with his cherished Red Guard? They're too radical. They're too dangerous. They're too left. We have to get rid of them. So he unleashed his famous People's Liberation Army on these terrorists that he had used for the previous two years, and within a few months, the Red Guard didn't exist anymore. 
Many of them were killed, many of them were rounded up and sent to the countryside to be re-educated or die in misery. Um, our woke friends likely suffer a similar fate in uh, at least digital ways through massive social credit restriction if they, think, if they get what the world they think they want. If the social credit system gets installed and they actually get control over us, the woke are going to get smashed because they're no longer useful. You don't need destabilizing agents during that phase, the building phase of a revolution. You only need them when you're breaking the previous country. Mao enjoyed his dictatorship from 66 to 76, so for 10 awful years. He mismanaged China rather gloriously. Um, many, many, many millions of people died. Um, one example, he had another wonderful famine where he decided that the infiltrating foreign birds were, were picking the crops, and so he initiated a campaign to kill all of the non-native birds of China, and the people were told to scare the birds and yell at them and chase them with sticks and make sure they can never rest on their roosts until they died of exhaustion, and he killed a bunch of birds so that he would protect the crops, that was the idea, because the bugs or something, and it turns out birds eat bugs, and so then there was a plague of bugs the next year that ate all the crops, and there was another famine and millions of people starved, because he was um, a mastermind of uh, how things work in the world, because he lived in synthetic or contrived reality is the problem. The system that runs in China now, as we heard earlier also, is run by his inheritor, Deng Xiaoping, not Mao. And what we have happening with our cultural revolution is Maoist tactics to break our country so that we can have Deng Xiaoping's model or something like it installed in the West as well. They're going to just fast track that. And what it does is blends communism and corporate fascism into one program. If you want to know what that looks like, I don't have to detail it, just look at what they're doing in China. Put the corporations in charge instead of the CCP, and you have basically the model. They're going to coordinate at Davos, the World Economic Forum, coordinate through the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund, the WHO, all these awful global organizations that are facilitating all of this. So how did Mao do this? What was Mao's dialectical political warfare like? Well, he had a few big points, and I'm going to kind of summarize and simplify a very complicated guy, but he had a great formula that was called unity criticism unity. He had a great method, which was identity politics, which is what we are suffering. He had a great tool, which was a youth rebellion, which we also have. He had a great target, which was all aspects of the old culture that had to be destroyed. And he had a great ambition, which was to seize absolute power. That's the big points of Maoism. He had a formula, a method, a tool, a target, and an ambition. Mao's great formula was unity, criticism, unity. And so I'll just tell you, instead of telling you what that means, I'm going to read to you from Mao. This is from a, a speech he gave in 1957 called On the Correct Handling of Contradictions Among the People. Remember that conflict thing, the contradictions among the people. So what he said is this democratic method of resolving contradictions among the people. He came up with a democratic method of doing it. was epitomized in 1942 in the formula Unity Criticism Unity. To elaborate, that means starting from the desire for unity, resolving contradictions through criticism or struggle, and arriving at a new unity on a new basis. In our experience, this is the correct method of resolving contradictions among the people. In 1942, we used it to resolve contradictions inside the Communist Party, namely the contradictions between the dogmatists and the great majority of the membership, and between dogmatism and Marxism. 
So remember I told you before he launched his revolution that began in 1946 and ended in 1949, he consolidated power? This is how he did it. The left dogmatists had resorted to the method of ruthless struggle and merciless blows in inter-party struggle. It had the wrong method. In criticizing left dogmatism, we did not use this old method but adopted a new one. That is, one of starting from the desire for unity, distinguishing between right and wrong through criticism or struggle, and arriving at a new unity on a new basis. This was the method used in the rectification movement of 1942. Within a few years, by the time the Chinese Communist Party held its seventh National Congress in 1945, unity was achieved throughout the party as anticipated, and consequently, the People's Revolution triumphed. So the formula consolidates power. It gets people all on the same page. In other words, it actually brings them into the cult. He had a name for this new unity on a new basis. The new basis is socialist discipline. That's what he called it. And it's operated under what he called, listen to this, remember marrying a truth to a lie? Democratic centralism. Democratic centralism. Let your brain just spin those words around. In your, we're going to have a democracy with centralized power. Power to the people held by a dictator. That's literally the program. That sounds completely nonsense, so we'll just let Mao tell you. What he said is, our democracy works within the ranks of the people, while the working class, uniting with all others enjoying civil rights, <laughs> and in the first place, with the peasantry, enforces dictatorship over the reactionary classes and elements and all those who resist socialist transformation and oppose socialist construction. See, so there's a dictatorship over everybody that's against him, and it represses them. Anybody who's against socialist transformation gets dictatorship. That's how this works. He says, by civil rights, we mean politically the rights of freedom and democracy. But this freedom is freedom with leadership, and this democracy is democracy under centralized guidance, not anarchy. And we skip down a little bit just so for people wanting to follow along when they look later. Both democracy and freedom are relative, he said, not absolute. Everything's relative because it's contrived. It's a lie and a truth married together. Both democracy and freedom are relative, not absolute. And they come into being and develop in specific historical conditions. Within the ranks of the people, democracy is correlative with centralism and freedom with discipline. Think about that for a minute. They are the two opposites of a single unity. There's your dialectical objective, right? They are two opposites of a single unity, contradictory as well as united. And we should not one-sidedly emphasize one to the exclusion of the other. Within the ranks of the people, we cannot do without freedom, nor can we do without discipline. We cannot do without democracy, nor can we do without centralism. This unity of democracy and centralism, of freedom and discipline, constitutes our democratic centralism. Isn't that a lot of word salad? Under this system, the people enjoy broad democracy and freedom, but at the same time, they have to keep within the bounds of socialist discipline. So you have all the freedom that you want and all the democracy that you want as long as the system never gets upset and as long as you only ever do what you're told. As long as everybody just does what they're told, everybody can have as much freedom as they want. You're free to do exactly what you're told at all times. This is what I'm talking about when I said dialectics is marrying a truth to a lie. 
Why? Because you do have to have people that are restraining themselves, not wild anarchy, in order to have a free society that functions. You have to have people of moral character. You have to have people that are willing to agree to, the, to follow the laws. You have to use state power with the police to make sure that people who don't want to follow the laws are taken care of in some way or another. That's the true side, but that's not what was going on in China. So it marries a truth to a lie. And just, again, let the words spin around in your head. Democratic centralism, freedom under discipline. This is the contrived or synthetic new basis that he was talking about. So we're going to have unity after criticism and struggle to get onto a new unity on this new program, this contrived new basis. That's what he was actually operating. And everything follows this kind of background mindset. This is what we're going to try to achieve. What he's actually describing with his criticism and struggle part, though, is psychological and social abuse into unity on contrived terms. We're going to have a unified country, but you don't want to play ball. So you are a problem. So we've got to fix you. And you need to confess to your crimes. Then we'll all have unity. Remember when Joe Biden got installed as president and he said, we're going to have unity? And the conservatives were like, according to who? And we saw through it. He tried the same trick and we saw through it. You should all give yourselves a pat on the back. This is what winning looks like against them. It looks like nothing happened. It's hard to see it sometimes. Easy to get discouraged. Same program got launched. We're going to have unity now that I'm installed as president with 81 million votes. We're going to have unity now. And what it's going to be is based on what? Inclusion and equity and sustainability and all these new basis buzzwords that they use today. Same, same, same. The way that it actually works, though, is using these struggle sessions to brainwash people onto the new basis. The basic message of this formula is that we all want unity. Some people, though, have a problem, and they're preventing us from having it. They want to do whatever they want. They're selfish. They just want to keep their privilege, and they need to be reformed so that we can have unity where we all agree to the new rules. Then we'll have freedom under discipline, and we can have democracy under central authority, which is still my favorite thing in the world. It's a very funny combination. The weapon he used to do this, though, is the struggle session. We have to spend a little time on the struggle session. This is the most sophisticated piece of psychological warfare, I think, that's maybe ever been devised, even more than propaganda. It is, in fact, not just warfare. It's actually torture. I would be more than happy to say that, that if we had something like the Geneva Convention making decisions about what's out of bounds, struggle sessions should be considered a form of out of bounds psychological torture. They are that horrible, what they do. Here's how they work. And they really did. They're called struggle sessions because the word that they used in Chinese, since there's Chinese people here, I'm going to mispronounce, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> it's like dojang or something like this. It's pretty close. Yeah, I got an okay on that. She knows what I'm trying to say. <laughs> There you go. Dojung. Closer. I can't do the tonals. Just forgive me. We'll practice later. It's called struggle in Chinese. They literally called it struggle. The goal is to make the person that you're dealing with struggle with themselves morally. Struggle with themselves in a social circumstance. Make them feel like they cannot possibly be good enough to fit in. Make them think that they must be criminals, that they must have done something wrong. Cause them constant self-doubt and have that reinforced by their entire social environment over and over and over again through shunning, shaming, humiliating, embarrassment. It is cruel beyond cruel. The reason so many of the people that were struggled went on to commit suicide shortly thereafter isn't just because it's humiliating, but it's because it's psychologically so damaging that it's almost impossible to comprehend how bad it is if you haven't been put through it.
The way that it works is that they arrange a social environment so that it will bully you. It only works when they have that, which tells you a way out of it. And then they accuse you of some vague or fake crime. Synthetic crimes, contrived crimes. Well, in China, what might they have been in the 1950s if you got rounded up by Mao? Or as people, what, what, would they, what would the CCP accuse you of? Harming the Chinese people. Harming the Chinese people. Very vague. Espionage. Passing secrets. And they'd haul you in front of a judge or an interrogator and tell you to go ahead. You've been hauled in front of us for harming the Chinese people. Tell us what you did. We know. We know everything. We know everything you've done. Tell us what you did. The sooner you confess, the better it goes for you. You don't know what you did. And then you're bullied by your social environment. In his prisons, it, it was your cell had eight to ten other people in it, and they bullied you relentlessly. They called it helping you. I'm not kidding. They called it helping you. And they bullied you relentlessly into wanting to confess, teaching you that to want to confess, to recognize your crimes according to the new basis, the contrived standard. You were bullied, you were harassed, you were harangued, and you were told constantly you're not doing it well enough. You have to learn to recognize your crimes, they said, from the people's standpoint, from the perspective of the people. How did you harm the people? Well, if you understood how the people really think, if you understood the people's standpoint, you would know how you harm the people. So just go ahead and confess. Oh, you don't understand? You need to go study the people's literature. You need to go understand Marxist-Leninism. Then you'll understand maybe how you harmed the people, and you might confess to it. And so you are accused of a crime, you know, like contributing to systemic racism that doesn't mean anything, and they force you to confess to it. The social environment bullies you and helps you, encourages your confession, and then you start to confess because eventually you have to. In fact, they made it very uncomfortable for you at the beginning. Maybe they put you in uh, chains behind your back for three weeks. You have to go to the bathroom, somebody else undoes your pants for you so you can go. You want to eat or drink, get on the floor like a dog. Make it very, oh, you can't sit down. You're going to stand the whole time for three weeks. You're not going to sleep for days. They made it very uncomfortable to make you want to confess. So you start to tell them, well, maybe, you know, that one time there was a guy that came by and I told him, you know, the price. This is a real story out of a book chronicling this, by the way. I told him, the book is called Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, if you want to look it up. I told him, you know, he came to my shop and I told him how much stuff costs. And then he went back to France. And so maybe I passed state secrets about prices in China. That's espionage. That's what they would consider espionage. And then they would tell you after, you, after you confess, that unfortunately your confession wasn't sincere enough. You didn't really mean it. You need more conviction. You need more clarity in how it actually reflects how you harm the people. It's not good enough. You have to do it again. You have to do it better. You have to do it more. You need to be sincere. Always sincere, sincere, sincere. So guess what that means for you practically? You can't apologize when they demand you to because all you're doing is giving in a little bit of their confession. They don't want that. They don't want your apology. They want you to bend the knee. You cannot capitulate to these things, but the pressures on you are overwhelming, and you constantly believe that if you just give them what they're asking for, it will get better, when in fact it actually gets worse. Now, in Mao's prisons and even in his schools, his revolutionary schools, he could arrange the social environment to make that very real. Uh, it's not as easy out in the streets. The Red Guard had to haul people out, and he had massive amounts of social support at the time. He'd already mostly transformed the culture to support it. Closed struggle sessions in prisons and schools are a little easier to do. Open struggle sessions work to turn your friends against you. You have to have a very poisoned social environment. And sadly, 
although I think it's starting to improve now, we already have that in America. That's how far we've come down this road. It creates a social environment, a social milieu that pressures you while the leftist interrogators are telling you that you have to do better and push it and spur it on. You need to recognize your crimes. You need to be sorry. You need to apologize. You need to do better. You've probably heard that. Your friends, meanwhile, are getting sick of it because the struggle session is contagious. Maybe you're part of an organization like this church. Maybe you come here. They start to struggle you, and then somebody points out, well, they go to this church, and everybody here at the church is complicit with your badness. It's contagious. So now all of a sudden, the people at the church are like, guys, we're getting a lot of bad press because so-and-so said whatever the thing is, and everybody's mad. He must be saying a racist thing or whatever. Dude, it'd be reasonable just to explain yourself. So now it's your friends, not your enemies coming after you, telling you it would be more reasonable. Be the bigger guy. Just, just explain yourself. Just say you messed up. Just confess a little bit. And your friends are the ones that are turning on you. So from your ex experience, your perspective, as somebody who has been through these a few times, you feel your friends betraying you one by one by one by one while you're being set upon by people who hate you. It is psychologically unbelievably terrible. And the pressure to just say something. And then your other friends who are on your side, they send you text messages these days and they say, so dude, I'm not gonna ask you to do anything publicly, but just tell me what really happened. And you're like, shut up and stand with me. And they don't. Don't just tell me, just tell me. And it eats your mind until all you wanna do is make it go away by giving in and apologizing. This is why you see these people, these famous people going on TV and crying when they get put through these. The pressure is unbelievable. And if it catches you off guard, you have no idea what you're about to be put through and you think you're gonna get out of it when you promise to do better. But what you've signed up for, in the words of Robin DiAngelo, is a lifelong commitment to an ongoing process of self-reflection, self-criticism, and social activism. So that pressure is overwhelming. All you experience is alienation, abandonment, and betrayal. Very few people know how to stand with you correctly. And it is overwhelming. And what it does is a process that we, if we use a technical term, is that it nullifies you. Your voice becomes less valuable. You alienate yourself from your, your friends. If you give in, you confess to try to get the pressure to go away, they see, your friends see you as a person who broke. Doesn't matter if they're your friends. Doesn't matter if they said it'll be reasonable. They see you as a person who caved in. So you're not as, as worthwhile. The left or the attackers, the dialectical warfare people, on the other hand, your torturer, sees you as somebody that they can break. All you do is lose authority. All you do is lose standing. All you do is lose a piece of your soul every single time and become less able to stand up for yourself in the future. So what this formula, though, unity, criticism, unity sets up, there's the people who want unity, and then there's the problems. There's the people, and then there's the enemy of the people, is a friend-enemy distinction. Friends are the people who desire unity on the new basis, and enemies are the people who don't, who see through it. You know, they're conservatives. They're baskets of deplorables. You know, you've heard the words, you know, a pandemic of the unvaccinated. What did Mao have to say about that? He said, we are confronted with two types of social contradictions. What about friends and enemies? He said, we are confronted with two different types of social contradictions. Those between ourselves and the enemy and those among the people. The two are totally different in nature. To understand these two different types of contradictions correctly, we must first be clear on what is meant by the people and what is meant by the enemy. The concept of the people varies in content in different countries and different periods of history and in the history of a given country. I skip a little bit of this kind of historical thing he gives to summarize it. 
At the present stage, the period of building socialism, the classes, strata, and social groups which favor, support, and work for the cause of socialist construction all come within the category of the people, while the social forces and groups which resist the socialist revolution and are hostile to or sabotage socialist construction are all enemies of the people. So if you're on the new basis, you're friends. If you're off the new basis, you're enemies. If you support Mao and his socialism, his program, you're people. If you don't support Mao and his socialism, you're enemies of the people. And you're taught in schools to the children to hate the enemies of the people. They're the people who are keeping us from moving forward with our unity on a new basis. To quote Mao again, he said, to give you an idea of this depersoning, this, this dehumanization, how thorough is it? He said, not to have, a, this is the same speech, not to have a correct political orientation is like not having a soul. You are not even a person. You are nothing to be considered if you don't agree with his political program. And that's why they bully you so relentlessly in the struggle session. And that's the position that they're trying to bring you to. By getting you to sell your soul piece by piece, they're giving you a soul. Isn't it always upside down? Total dehumanization. So it's very easy to teach these people are holding us back and they're not even people. Totally easy to teach people to hate them. And what do you do with the enemies? Our state, he said, is a people's democratic dictatorship led by the working class. Think about that for a second. It's a dictatorship led by the working class? Really? Really? I mean, the Chinese term for the, the working class here, or part of it anyway, is coolie. And I can tell you that they most definitely were not running anything. Our state is a people's democratic dictatorship led by the working class and based on the worker-peasant alliance. What is this dictatorship for? Its first function is internal, namely to suppress the reactionary classes and elements and those exploiters who resist the socialist revolution. Its first purpose is to suppress everybody who's not on the program. That's what it's for. He goes on, to suppress those who try to wreck our socialist construction, or in other words, to resolve the contradictions between ourselves and the internal enemy. For instance, to arrest, try, and sentence certain counter-revolutionaries and deprive landlords and bureaucrat capitalists of their right to vote and their freedom of speech for a certain period of time. All this comes within the scope of our dictatorship. So all this history lesson about how Mao ran China should feel a little uncomfortably familiar to you. So Mao had a great method. And a lot of people don't understand this, so I'm so glad I got talked about it earlier. It's identity politics. The identity politics we're feeling today is not a uniquely American invention. The categories are very American. But it is not a uniquely American invention. Mao created two broad categories, red and black, for people, and then there were subcategories under them. There were not that many red categories. You could be a peasant, they carry a sickle. You could be a laborer, they carry a hammer. Hammers and sickles, right? Or you could be a revolutionary soldier, a revolutionary leader, or cadre, as they called them, or a revolutionary martyr. So I guess if you were a martyr for the cause, maybe your kids inherited it because you're dead. I don't know how that works. But then there was the black class of people. You were wealthy. So it was rich farmers, landlords, anybody who had land or had money, which by which we might mean having two walks to cook in, that's bourgeois, you don't need that. People who had bourgeois values, in fact, it started to include other categories beyond the wealthier people in society, which is still often dirt poor, by the way, 
It started to include um, what he called bad influences or bad elements. It also included counter-revolutionaries, as you just heard, anybody who was against his program. And it included what he called rightists or right-wingers. And it later included a category of revisionists, people who were telling the history of China the way that he didn't want it told would be a way to summarize that. What he did with these identity politics was he created a pressure pump to make people terrified of wanting to be categorized as a black category and desire strongly to be categorized as a red category. First class, second class citizen is the basic idea. You were treated very badly. You were not in good shape if you were in a black class, if you had negative social credit in modern parlance, and if you had positive social credit or in a red class, life was a little better for you, or at least sort of. And people worked, as we heard earlier today, not only worked to get into the red class, they worked obsessively. It's almost worse to be in the red class because you're constantly obsessed about what you have to do to stay in the red class because one mistake and you might get kicked out. This created a pressure pump on identity politics to push people out of normal identities and into revolutionary identities. That's the essence of it. And that's how he actually created the desire for unity behind the unity criticism unity formula. His great tool that he used to do the cultural revolution like we've talked about was a youth rebellion. He generated a group of kids like we talked about called the Red Guard. I already covered their history. I won't do it again. And he did that through the captured schools, which I already described. So schools became brainwashing centers so he could create a radicalized youth that he could unleash on the streets later. Doesn't that sound like what happened in 2020 and kind of ever since? But another purpose of this was to split families apart. Maoism is a cult. Communism is a cult. Cults can't have people going back to their families who might get them out of the cult to find a place where they have acceptance if they've made a mistake and might leave the cult to have a place where there's somebody that they consider important or revere and Confucian ethics in China family piety in fact honoring the father is super super important it's a big deal so what did he do if you want to get in that red identity and get out of your black identity spy on your parents denounce your father Denounce your family, change your name, get rid of your name, the names your parents gave you. Consider Mao your father, consider the party your, your, your father. Anything to split families apart so that you can't go back to your family and get away. The reasons, if you read what happens with people involved in cults or in Maoism or in any communist thing, most specifically, the people that are the most resistant are people who have families and faith that they can turn to that keeps them grounded and keeps them from being stuck uh, in the cult mentality. So you have to separate people through the cult activity from those forces, especially family and faith. So that's why he had to target the old culture. He had to smash the four olds. He had to destroy religion primarily. Besides the demoralization, the looting, the constant fear tactics, the constant wondering if you were going to have your stuff smashed or destroyed, the changing of the names of streets and so on. In addition to that, he had to destroy all religions that aren't the cult of Mao, including the CCP that wasn't the cult of Mao in the Cultural Revolution. So you had to destroy all religion. Again, Maoism is a cult, and cults always have to destroy competing religions. They always have to keep you in-house, and they can't let you possibly learn something that might bring you to the truth or stability, especially stability, because stability repels revolutions. And his great ambition was power, absolute power, whether in the Cultural Revolution, when he was setting up his, his total dictatorship and getting it back from the CCP, or whether in his first revolution his ambition still was to power. Um, 
Of course, he abused that power. I hearken back because I want to mention the Great Reset again just for kicks and giggles. Uh, the Great Leap Forward was an exercise of that power. It's a good example of what happens when you give a communist power or a dialectical progressive power. Bad things happen. And it's kind of tangential, but you don't really just tangent over the scale of that. If that number that I mentioned earlier, 50 to 60 million murders and starvations and the Great Leap Forward is correct. And we took all of those poor souls and we collected their skulls and we built a pile in a roughly square pyramid. You know the pyramids at Egypt in Giza? And there's the big, big one and then there's the other big one and then there's that smaller one and then there's the three little ones. That smaller one, the middle-sized one or the, the smallest of the three big ones. That's how big the, the, the pyramid of skulls would be. Of the people that died in the... Uh, Cultural, or sorry, the Great Leap Forward. And so we're doing our Great Reset. So instead of being best in industry, best in agriculture, we're trying to be worst in both of those. We're trying to be worst in energy because we have to be best in inclusivity, belonging, and sustainability. We have to get rid of emissions instead of making steel. So you have to get rid of your gas-powered car instead of your spoon. All of this is being repeated, though, not just that part, in Western Maoism, in American Maoism. And it's all based on the, the modern and postmodern critical theories that we've all kind of sadly had to become familiar with over the last two to three years. Um, the name for Western Maoism, or American Maoism specifically, is what we call intersectionality. So I guess the parallels are, are obviously very clear to most people in here now. I can actually feel that you're uncomfortable. Uh, standing here, and especially given the talks that you heard earlier today, I saw how those affected people. They affected me, and real men don't sit in the corner and cry or anything. Shh. So Maoism was based on Marxism, and this is the key difference. Marxism-Leninism, as he, he put it, and Mao said what we're going to do. He didn't do, he didn't strictly take what Stalin had in USSR and then do that in China. He said we're going to do Marxism-Leninism with Chinese characteristics. He did his own thing. So what is this intersectional American Maoism, it's Maoist Marxism, same method, same thing we just covered, with American characteristics, like race politics, sexual politics, things that we care about instead of whether or not we can move up and down the economic ladder, because we all know that if we work hard, we probably can. So we have to understand Western Marxism, which is different. Sometimes it gets called cultural Marxism. I am listed on the SPLC as a conspiracy theorist right now because I push the cultural Marxism conspiracy theory. It's the biggest conspiracy theory that has a hundred-year-long train of thought and thousands and thousands of pages of writing about it that's ever been. Um, it was considered a school of thought right up until the point when people started to criticize it. Uh, the idea is, though, that you're going to use forms of cultural capital and social capital in place of forms of economic and material capital and do Marxism on them. That's it. Because the West is resistant to economic Marxism very strongly. It's very hard. You can do a top-down force, like in the Eastern Bloc, you can come down top-down and force them into communism, and it's very unstable, very unpopular. It's very hard to get a grassroots movement that begs for communism in the West because people can go get jobs instead. They really can. Or they can make their own company. They can do a lot of things. And so when capitalism advanced to what they call advanced capitalism by the middle of the 20th century, there was no chance, and the Marxists of the time admitted, there was no chance that economic Marxism was going to work in the West. So Marxism had to evolve for this different situation. Think of it like, you know, uh, 
antibiotics, right? So sometimes you put the antibiotics and the bacteria become resistant to it and you have bacteria resistant antibiotics because you don't kill all of them. So the ones that don't get poisoned by the antibiotics end up surviving and making more bacteria. Now none of them get attacked. Well, that's what had to happen here. That's what had to happen here. Marxism had to change to be able to infect Western societies because the economic model isn't going to work. And Marxism, everybody mistakenly believes, is about economics. But it's not about economics, and it never was about economics. It's a theology. Marxism is a theological position. It is a set of answers to the question of what does it mean to be man and what is man's role in the world and what are our duties of conscience as somebody who lives in that world. Its answer to how the world is organized is called dialectical materialism. Our duties are to advance the dialectic through activism and seizing the means of production. It is fully fledged a theology of what it means to be human in a world where man is meant to become his own god. It's a program for remaking man into Marx's idea of what would be the ideal man, the absolute man the synthetic contrived man who's a communist. He called it a species being. Socialist man is another way that it gets translated. The thing is, is Marx believed that economic conditions make man. So he's got this theology that man is made somehow, and he becomes who he is somehow, and he has duties around that, and it works in a certain way. He has a whole religion of how, you know, the means of production produce people, and he believed, well, I don't want to get a job and I could do a lot more of the louting around and writing stupid theory that I wanted to do if I didn't have to pay my bills. So economic conditions are ruining my life, so obviously economic conditions make man. Man is made as a product of his, econ his economic situation. If I didn't have to get a job, if we had communism, I could write theory all day. He actually said that. He said that we could hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, maybe I have those two backwards, I don't know, and write Social criticism in the evening, if we had communism. That's what he said you could do with your time. That's all he wanted to do. So the question becomes, how do you make man? If you believe that this is a theology of making man into the God he was always intended to be, how do you make man? Well, it's through the means of production. You thought those were factories or farms. They're not. They didn't send she off to the countryside for re-education to do agriculture. They sent her off to learn how to be a proper human. She had to learn how to be a social person. She had to make herself. The means of production were not wheat or rice. The means of production were her, to have the right mentality, the right attitude, to recognize what it means to be a member of the people and to work for the people, to transform herself into a truly social being who has transcended, as Marx put it, transcended private property as human self-estrangement. And those means of production, Marx believed, had to be seized by the people who had the special insight of how we really are, which is socialist. And the goal is to use the control of how we produce people, human beings, our souls, so that we can free ourselves from the bondage of being. We were thrown into our lives. We didn't get to pick whether we're rich or poor. We didn't get to pick if we're black or white. We didn't get to pick who or how we are. We were flung into it. We're thrown into this world outside of our choice, but if we could seize the means of production that give those things meaning, we could transform the world, set ourselves free, and liberate ourselves from the awful prison that we are in the world. In fact, believe that man is made dialectically through observing these contradictions in our circumstances and working through the conflict that it creates. The dialectic 
transforms through that line of conflict with the idea of spiraling toward the perfect end point. And that conflict for Marx is laid across what's called social stratification. In other words, the haves versus the have-nots. The privileged versus the oppressed. The haves order the world. The oppressed, uh, they oppress the people who don't have in order to keep the order of the world serving them at the exploitation of everybody else, which alienates everybody from themselves. That's Marxist theology. So if you flip that over, you stop alienating everybody and they get to realize who they are, which is a truly social being that is the ideal man that is in fact himself God. Marx put it that way himself. He actually said in, in 1843 or four, uh, that the goal of his program of communism is to make man into the one true son that revolves around himself. Work on that too. I don't know how you revolve around yourself. What this is actually is a recreation of the Gnostic faith. There are certain people who know how the world is really supposed to be. We're imprisoned in being by evil demons called the Demiurge and the Archons. And... Um, Maybe it's economic conditions work that way, maybe it's racial conditions work that way, whatever it is. And uh, it's, a, it's a total recreation that the Gnostics have to save humanity from itself by breaking free of the imprisonment of our souls in a fallen world. Um, it's very seriously not just a religion, but a cult in that regard. The way that that is done is by awakening a consciousness in the have-nots that they are historical agents who can seize those means of production and transform history and transform man and transform society. And the way that they're going to do that is to be activated to drive the conflict that drives history to its desired endpoint. These are your Gnostic elect. Socialists are the elect in the Marxist faith. Anti-racists are the elect in the CRT faith. Trans people are the elect in that, in queer theory. And how do they talk about themselves? Trans people are sacred. They literally say it about themselves. They think that they have ascended to angelhood. Which it doesn't look like, I'm just, you're not supposed to judge, but I'm just, my eyes still work, they don't look like angels. They don't act like them either. So the question for this religion is, which line of conflict is actually how we move history? Which one's the most relevant in a given society? And if you believe it's only economic conditions and you're an old school Marxist and you think that CRT is a bunch of new age crap that's not Marxist at all and you can't understand why I wrote a book called Race Marxism and believe you me, I've heard from every one of those people. But I want to take a step back and say that's not how it works. I want to say that it's a general program and Marx economic conditions are the way that it works. So we mistake him for an economist. But the idea of Marxism, if you think like in animals, you know they got a genus and a species. So there's like a genus of cats and then there's different kinds of cats and they're different within, you know, lions and tigers and leopards and house cats are not the same. They're all different species of one genus of animal. That might be wrong. I don't know that much about cats. I'm not a biologist really. <laughs> we do have to consult the taxonomy correctly for that. But the point is that if we think of Marxism as a genus of ideologies, a genus, a way of thinking of, of lots of different ways of thinking, and then we select different means of production, we can understand how we got to Western Marxism. We have an overarching dialectical theology that has lots of denominations. And if you think it's economic conditions make man, you have Marxism. And if you think it's racial conditions, you have CRT and so on. 
The idea is that Marxism is a species that thinks that capital is the form of bourgeois property that causes all of the production of man. Well, what if you think it's something else? Well, if you think it's racial conditions, there's a paper in Critical Race Theory called Whiteness as Property. If you think whiteness is a form of cultural property that has meaningful, uh, a meaningful sense in how man is constructed, how we make man, then you get CRT. And you believe the world is constructed in systemic racism, and that's why we call it race Marxism. If you think that patriarchy orders the world, then you're a Marxist feminist. Men dictate how it is to be a woman. And that's what feminism has been since Simone de Beauvoir in 1949. If it's colonial status, that's not really big here in the US, it's very big in Europe, Australia, Canada, and so on, that's making a land acknowledgement and all of these things. Um, it's civilized versus savage, that's the line. If you decide that that line is what makes man into who he is, then you get post-colonial theory out of Marxist theory. If it's what it means to be normal, aka normativity, you get queer theory, including the ones about body health, like ability status, fat status, and all of those things. Normal people have the power to declare themselves normal. That gives them an unfair advantage in the world that oppresses everybody who falls outside of their narrow definition that serves themselves. It's the same theory, same idea. If you go into who's considered to be somebody who knows things, who is a knower or has knowledge, and thus an authority on subjects, you end up with what's called critical pedagogy, which is the educational theory that we've adopted in our schools, the Marxist educational theory. And all the rest hang on this because that opens up the door to lived experience being the main under thing that makes you understand uh, how it is to be. Now we notice she has lived experience, Lily has lived experience, and if they tell people their lived experience of Mao, theirs doesn't count. It's only lived experience when it agrees with the new basis. It's only lived experience when it agrees with them. Because it's all about who gets to be a knower. And only the Marxists get to count as people who have knowledge. So their knowledge is false knowledge. They have internalized colonialism or something. Who knows? If it's who gets to have meaning or decide what things mean, what words mean, for example. How meaning is described for symbols and words. Who's the meaning makers? What do our stories mean? That's postmodernism. Who has the authority to decide how meaning is assigned to things? If you do a Marxist theory of that, you get postmodernism. So when you put all these together, you get something I call identity Marxism. And it's rooted in all the critical theories. And they are species of Marxism that adapted themselves to fit into Western contexts as opposed to uh, the economic conditions in the peasant societies of China and Russia when those um, communists took over there. The economic ones don't work in places that are economically healthy, and none of them work in societies that are actually healthy. In the 1960s, the Marxists recognized this, the American Marxists recognized this. Herbert Marcuse, Max Horkheimer, these are members of the Frankfurt School, recognized this, and they admitted, both of them, in 1969, very openly, it's not the only time, but they both in that year openly said that capitalism stabilizes the working class so it won't be revolutionary. It allows them to build a better life. It gives them a good life, and in fact, it is a good life, if I can paraphrase them from my memory correctly. So Marcuse had a solution to this. We use identity politics in America. We go into the ghetto population, as he phrased it. We find the racial minorities, the sexual minorities, the feminists, and the outsiders, and we mobilize them to do what I now call identity Marxism. And then he penned in 1965 an essay, a very famous essay called Repressive Tolerance, which I'll read a little bit from in just a second. 
and recreated the friend-enemy distinction for the Western context, the same thing that Mao used. He imported that probably from Mao. He was familiar with Mao because Marcuse, believe it or not, a Marxist, a known open Marxist, was one of the first members of what was called the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, which is the precursor to the CIA. And therefore, he helped organize that and had access to the intelligence of what was going on in uh, hostile nations like China. But he also had read Carl Schmitt, who we heard about earlier, the, 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 the grand jurist of the Third Reich, one of Hitler's Supreme Court types, who also described the need for a friend-enemy distinction in politics. So Marcuse brings it in under the disguise, because communists always use disguises, of repressive tolerance. And so he said that societies like ours have a kind of tolerance, but it's repressive tolerance. It represses anything that might be truly revolutionary because it wants to maintain itself. And he proposes an opposite to repressive tolerance, the idea of liberating tolerance, a new kind of upside-down tolerance that would allow us to achieve liberation. So I'm going to read from Marcuse. Listen to how much this sounds like Mao. He said, liberating tolerance then would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left. That's the sentence. Couldn't put it more clearly than that, could he? Usually they hide their stuff better. As to the scope of this tolerance and intolerance, it would extend to the stage of action as well as of discussion and propaganda, of deed as well as of word. True pacification requires the withdrawal of tolerance before the deed at the stage of communication in word, print, and picture. So that when you get kicked off of Facebook for life for a meme, you have Herbert Marcuse to, think, to thank for it. The small and powerless minorities which struggle against the false consciousness, so here's the identity politics part, right? The small and powerless minorities which struggle against the false consciousness and its beneficiaries must be helped. Their continued existence is more important than the preservation of abused rights and liberties which grant constitutional powers to those who oppress those minorities. Doesn't that sound like the world we live in today? That's where it came from, right there. That essay, 1965, Repressive Tolerance. And so why identity Marxism instead of economic Marxism? Because it works here. It's about gaining power. It has to do what works. It works here. They work where there is a reservoir of shame and guilt. Why do you think so many socialists are rich people? They are ashamed and feel guilty for their success. They go out and they see other people not having as much. They imagine it must be terrible to be a normal person, riding things like jet skis instead of yachts, drinking their you know, crappy beer instead of, you know, fine wine. Oh, could you imagine how oh, it'd be awful to be that riffraff? And we should help them. We'll liberate them with socialism. It works where there's reservoirs of guilt and shame, just like what they induced with the struggle sessions in Mao's prisons. Because communism always manipulates guilt and shame. It tries to make you feel guilty and selfish for being who you are until you adopt their program. They try to make you feel ashamed of how you were born until you adopt their program as the remedy. That's the whole formula for real right there. It's colonialism in, U in Europe and the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and so on. It's race primarily in the United States. The queer theory and feminism kind of touches throughout all different parts of the West. Doesn't work in Latin cultures though. It does work however, if you actually pay attention, it's working extremely well in India. India is going deep, deep into queer theory very, very fast. This is a global phenomenon. 
They can also use economic things, or actually sort of a quasi-racial thing there because of the caste system. Anywhere there's a reservoir of guilt, they can tap into that, make people feel guilty for having privilege, and then turn the whole society on its head by mostly indoctrinating young people into how the world could be so much better and less unfair. It amplifies anywhere there is envy across those lines of conflict. It is truly, truly an evil religion. It is all of mankind's worst traits codified into a religion and turned into a tactic for political warfare. And when you mix them all together, you get intersectionality. That's what intersectionality is. We could do a whole lecture, that's what I did at Northwestern, about how intersectionality actually can be traced back, not just from Kimberly Crenshaw, who named it, back to the Combahee River Collective, which gave her the inspiration and the ideas, which is a thing from black feminism, back to Herbert Marcuse, who actually mentored Angela Davis, who was a member of the Combahee River Collective and who was quoted in Kimberly Crenshaw. So there's your intersectionality back to Marcuse. And then Marcuse borrowed it from Mao uh, in particular uh, in high likelihood because he knew what was going on and he talked about the revolution in China in positive terms in almost everything he wrote in the 1960s. As did the guy who wrote the critical education stuff. Paulo Ferreri said his education method was based on what he was learning about what was happening in Mao's China. So intersectionality is the American version of Mao's identity politics. So we have American Maoism here. That was the thesis of my talk, is that's what we have here. The same traits of Maoism are being repeated through woke. We have new ideological branches, we have new language, we have this sustainability environmental thing that the Chinese clearly didn't and don't care about, but that's absolutely what we're dealing with today. Maoism repeated through the woke ideologies. It has Mao's great formula. Remember, unity, criticism, unity. Now it's, we just want a place where everybody feels like they belong. That's a call to unity, desired unity. But we can't have that because some of you are racist and so are friends of color who don't feel comfortable. Some of you have transphobic attitudes, so our trans friends can't feel comfortable. I was going to say brothers and sisters, but we're not sure which one they are. It's impossible to tell. Some of you are problematic and need to be denounced and struggled until we can have uh, an, a truly inclusive society. Unity, criticism, unity. A place where everybody feels like they belong, but you're problematic, and then we can have an inclusive society when everybody's brainwashed onto the new basis. This is all repeated in the context of sustainability. It was repeated in the context of COVID. That's why we heard about the pandemic of the unvaccinated. We could be unified in fighting this if we would all just do whatever the WHO says. If we all just mask, if we shut down for two weeks, which equals two years, if we did all of these things, and this, is, this pandemic just keeps going because it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated. We could have unity in this country if we would all criticize everybody, bully everybody, shut people out of society for, going along, for not going along with the program that the government's trying to force on them. And that's what's holding us back. And we will have a great new unity under health tyranny uh, health equity and so on on the other side. Same, like I said, with sustainability, you see, because some people are selfish and want to keep their cars. Some people are selfish and want to use the air conditioner. Some people are selfish and don't want to cut back on how much they travel to reduce their carbon footprint. The same model exactly. We could have a sustainable future with a circular economy, but some people are selfish and don't want to step backwards and, as Marcuse put it, become content with less and a lower standard of living. That's what he said was a precondition for his utopia. This is all enforced through struggle sessions on every one of these issues. If you actually want to listen to somebody talk very well about that without ever mentioning the relevant terms, listen to the way Tucker Carlson talks about everything. Tucker Carlson 
gives hilarious speeches talking about how it's like, you know, we're going to have a national conversation about race. Shut up! <laughs> Not you! Shut up! He's really funny and I can't imitate him that well. You should watch him do it. It's struggle sessions are being done all over again. They're not taking place in prisons. They bring up these inflammatory issues. They tell you there's a right answer. See, because if you had even a single question about Ukraine, you were a Russian puppet. If you had a single question about COVID, you were an anti-vaxxer public health threat. You had a single question about George Floyd or systemic racism, you're a racist. It's the exact same program, the exact same struggle sessions. Where's your black square? Raise your fist. You do the thing. Say it. Black Lives Matter. Say it. Say it. Marx, Mal Marcuse, say it. Whoops, I got into the wrong slogan. It's the exact same program. You don't experience it, however, in a prison. Your kids do experience it at school. But you probably experience it in workplace DEI sessions. It's a condition of your employment. You pretty much have to go. You pretty much have to go along and get along. You don't want to upset the apple cart because you know you're going to get in trouble. You know you're going to get marked as somebody who's a problem if you speak your mind. And you get a struggle session. You know there's a lot of racism in our society. Systemic racism even affects our office. Why don't we all just take a few minutes to confess how you've been racist in the past. Confess to your crimes that you didn't recognize until Robin D'Angelo admitted them. I don't think I'm racist. That's white fragility. You need to engage in more self-criticism. Hey, yeah, that, what's your problem? You know, we want to get out of this meeting as fast as possible. Just admit that you're a racist. Come on, let's get out of here. And the struggle session happens at work. You want to have a voice? You sign up for social media. That's where you get struggled the most. You say one wrong thing, somebody interprets something that wasn't even wrong the wrong way, you've done something horrible, or watching some country singer get put through a struggle session right now. It was a hockey player the other day. It's a football player at some point. You name it. Somebody... It's been me 20-something times. I got let back on Twitter, got put through a vigorous social uh, struggle session because they wanted me to quit Twitter. It happens. If you want a voice, you sign up for the struggle session machine, which we call social media. And bots and bad people and activists swarm you, and they put you on lists of thousands of people who are like, this person's a problem, go after them, and thousands of people appear out of nowhere, and for three days to two weeks, your life is a living hell if you so much as look at your phone, which psychologically you find is almost impossible to avoid doing. So your, social, your struggle sessions are happening in DEI sessions and workplace trainings and on social media. They are definitely using identity politics. I don't think I even have to explain this at this point, how the intersectionality works. Right, Mao goes to Marcuse, Marcuse goes to Davis, that goes to Combi River Collective, goes to the woke, like I said, that's intersectionality. Instead of a black class to red class pressure pump, it's like you can't do anything about your race, especially if you're white or if you're Asian, that's the new white, it's like you can't do anything about that, so guess what, you can be trans. That's what it is. I just was at this Turning Point USA conference and Charlie Kirk asked 700 or so, 600 and something high school and college leaders Raise your hand if you feel like the social environment at your school think makes it cool to be LGBTQ of some kind. Everybody raise their hand. Raise your hand if it's cool to be straight in your environment. Nobody raise their hand. Not one. The pressure pump is overwhelming. I have a friend who was driving her, her teenage son to go get chicken tenders, and 14-year-olds occasionally drop a bomb on you, and he's like, Mom, would you be upset if I told you I'm not gay? 
And she starts digging into it. She's pretty savvy, pretty smart. She starts digging into it. Why would that, why would you ask me that? You know, what, wait, what? And do you feel a lot of pressure at school to say that you're gay? Oh yeah, constantly, constantly. You are not cool unless you're gay, unless you're trans, unless you're something in the, the gender or sexual minority category. Overwhelming pressure. They tell us that our parents are either going to hate us if we admit that we're gay, or they're gonna expect us to be gay basically, and it's a big thing. That's why I had to ask. That's the level of psychological pressure being put on the kids. The goal is to make them feel bad about something they can't change like their race, to press them into a revolutionary identity and create a rainbow guard instead of a red guard. And their fate, like I said earlier, is probably going to be the same as a red guard. Bad. You don't need destabilizers when you're in the building a stable regime phase. The youth rebellion came from captured schools. Guess where the kids are getting it? Well, entertainment and social media first, but then the schools which should be correcting them are affirming it. And the kids that aren't picking it up through entertainment and social media, and it's not penetrating that way, or through the library books, oh my gosh, the kids that aren't getting it through those sources are getting fed what are called generative themes, like drag queens, at school. So they'll start asking the questions and they'll start having the discussions and all the discussions and social emotional learning are geared toward equity, inclusion, sustainability, and global citizenship. And the goal is to drive kids into conscientization or con- critical consciousness, wokeness, and become activists and to adopt the identities that are intrinsically activist. Little did you know, queer does not mean gay in woke theory. Queer is an intrinsically, inherently unambiguously political identity. It is nothing to do with who you are attracted to, what you're into, nothing to do with any of it. It is wholly a political identity. You know what its job is? To smash all norms, to be opposed to all four plus more of the olds. It's the exact same model as Mao. And now they're using this to push what's called global citizenship education. The definition of global citizenship education, by the way, is education that is in line with getting the kids to support and be activists for achieving the sustainable development goals of the United Nations Agenda 2030. That's what it means to be a global citizen, somebody who supports the new basis called Agenda 2030 and its sustainable development goals. The Youth Rebellion also splits families. The sex and sexuality stuff is obviously the most powerful among that. You set kids against their parents. Your kids won't, or your parents won't like if you come out to them. It might be dangerous for you. You need to come to a trusted adult who might not be your parents. That's what um, Admiral Richard Levine just said on some interview. That's a cancelable offense, by the way, what I just did. That is black category business right there. Admiral Richard Levine, let me say that one more time, Admiral Richard Levine said that you have to go to a trusted adult who might not be your parents. And that's why they have to have the library books, that's why they have to have the drag queens, that's why they have to have the sexuality education coming down from the United Nations, comprehensive sexuality education, which has seven key pillars, one of which is pleasure pleasure-based sexual education for your children. That's big, it's real, it's here, and it came from the top, from the United Nations. And that splits families. That screws with kids' heads, it destabilizes kids because stability repels a revolution. What did Marcuse and Horkheimer say? Oh, the working class is stable, they'll never revolt. What do we do? Agitate on identity politics, that's to make them unstable. Nothing makes 
a child more unstable than inappropriate romantic and sexual relationships with adults. Nothing. You fry their brains with the sexuality stuff. They're completely unstable. They reject their religion. They're afraid of their parents. Mom, you don't understand is the best case scenario. And you have state after state. I think the number might be 13 or 14, but certainly California, Washington, Minnesota, and Vermont. I know there are others I could probably name. Have passed laws that should be called transgender trafficking bills that allow you to have your kids taken away from you if you don't affirm their gender identity that they picked up at school. Separate families, just like Mao. As in a same great target, the old culture kind of covered that. Well, what do we have within the critical race theory? We have to go after America's founding and history constantly. We have to have this 1619 project that says that 1776 was actually about slavery. And 1619 is really when America was founded because when the first slave came. Because this country was always about slavery and always will be. Give us reparations. By the way, cash the check, write it here. You know what it's really about. But it's also to destroy religion. We're going to talk a lot about that tomorrow night. I'm going to tell you all about the big giant plan to destroy religion, mostly from within. And then has the same great ambition, which is to get all the power and to use it to affect a, a, a program that is going to be a disaster. We did the Great Leap Forward before. We're going to work on a Great Leap Backwards now. The social credit system engineering program, uh, entities, whoever they are, the big banks, maybe it's BlackRock and Larry Fink, Whoever it is that's going to rule the world on the other side of this revolution is setting up a social credit system to have absolute power over us, just like they have over people in China. And um, we're going to use that to get through a great reset and net zero or absolute zero to go down to a destroyed world. Um, so instead of trying to be, again, best in industry, we're actually trying to be the best in some nonsense inclusivity and sustainability. In other words, we're going to be the best in tearing ourselves apart on purpose. Western suicide, on purpose. So there's no more room for us to pretend that we don't know what's happening in our country. There's no more time to be afraid to name what's happening in this country. America and the West are being put through a cultural revolution. Take some time, get that into your head, and study the cultural revolution on your own. What can I do? Go learn about the cultural revolution. Start understanding the parallels and start showing them to people. Start telling people about that. You can read about it yourself. You can do a book club yourself. You can be on Wikipedia before they change it because it's now getting exposed. And so they'll definitely have a like cultural revolution conspiracy theory replacing the, the entry on Wikipedia before you know it. You can actually go study these things. And by the way, that's true. Cultural Marxism used to have a page, and now if you go to it, it's cultural Marxism conspiracy theory on Wikipedia. They changed the page. So expect it with the cultural revolution. But you can study this. This is something you can do. You can awaken other Americans that this is what's happening in our country and that if we don't stop it, we have only one place to look at what our future looks like, and it's China, which is no freedom. Here's an example. I saw a video that was shared by Asians for Liberty on the Twitter the other day, a few weeks ago, where it shows somebody, and they're in their 15-minute city block or whatever, and to leave the block so the government can track you, you have to walk through a turnstile. But to do that, you have to look into a facial recognition camera so it knows you left. It knows where you're going. And when the person looked at the camera, maybe you should look at the camera. When he looked at the camera, it said, smile. And until he smiled, it didn't open. That's selling your soul big time. That is total control over you. 
You can't leave your apartment building till you smile for the government. So now we have all of these things going on with all this, you know, shoplifting, because it's not a crime in these cities on the West Coast, right? They have all these shoplifting problems. So I just saw a video from Portland, Oregon. Of course, this is, you know, the best city in America in all regards. And so they have this shoplifting problem. People have just been going into, like, I don't know, Walgreens or some store, and they just clean the shelves out, right? Up to whatever $900 is not a crime or something. They just get robbed all the time. So what solution did our genius, synthetic, totalitarians in Portland come up with? Well, at first, they put everything behind lock bars, right? Well, that's really inconvenient. Somebody has to come out. It might be dangerous. They have to unlock it just so they can get out, you know, some, like, contact solution so you can go buy it or whatever. That's no good. They put a facial recognition camera on the door, and until you looked in it and it recognized your face and put you in the database that you're the one that went in the store, knew who you were, the door won't open. So that way, if you steal anything, they would obviously know who you are. So you, you could, they could get you, right? And they could deal with it. And you're not going to steal stuff because they know who stole it. And you're like, oh, well, that's a solution to that problem. The, the, instead of the police, obviously, right? Instead of actually enforcing shoplifting laws. That's a solution. That's a new solution to the problem. You don't even need police. They can't even get in the store if they have a bad social credit system score. You can't even get in the store if the government doesn't like you. And if you do get in the store and they know that you went in, and they know everything you bought. And they know when you left. And you're going to say, wow, those cameras, or the people in Portland did, said those cameras are a solution to this problem we have. Because we couldn't possibly go back to the police, because the police are racist. We have to speak up about these things. We are on the cusp. We have to speak up. We can no longer pretend we don't know what's happening. This is a cultural revolution. We are halfway through it. America and the West are being put through a cultural revolution based on neo-Marxist identity politics as the new Marxist theory. As we said, uh, Maoist Marxism based on American characteristics. So there are two questions before us as a people, including the people in this room and the people throughout this country. Number one, can a cultural revolution that has already begun be stopped? Can we stop a cultural revolution? It's an open question. There's only been one. It didn't get stopped. Can we stop a cultural revolution? And if so, how? What do we have to do to stop the cultural revolution? One thing is absolutely clear on these two questions. We must do everything we can do to try to stop it if it can be stopped. Now, I think America is different. The conditions are different. The cultural revolution in China took place after the Great Leap Forward ravaged the country, broke the people. After 16 or 17 years of full blast indoctrination, we've had indoctrination in our schools for a long time, that's true, but not full, not full blast. That's been three or, two or three years, except in California and Washington and Oregon. Everybody say a prayer for those states. It's a different situation. We are not already under over a decade of communist rule, communist indoctrination at full, uh, full power. So the situation is different. This is also America. America is different. For my part, I think America can stop this. We have a constitution, and if we're willing to stand and defend it, that will make a huge difference. They had already CCP total power. That's not a constitution to defend individual rights. If the CCP decided that the Red Guard is going to ha have free reign and the police turn their, 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 their faces away, they had no recourse. We still have recourse. We still have lawsuits we can file. We just talked about the lawsuit against Harvard and UNC that's 
shot hard across affirmative action and ended it in college admissions until they find some weird workaround. We have a completely different situation, but what we have to do is we have to be willing to act, which we are very rapidly being, which is a very helpful situation, but we also have to learn how to act. And this is a crucial and dangerous moment in American history. This is a pivotal moment in American history because if we react and react badly, they will use it against us and we will, we will lose when we could have won. We will have victory stolen from us and end up in defeat. On the other hand, if we learn to act, if we learn the theme that I had all night, dialectical political warfare techniques, and learn how to understand them, expose them, and counteract them, and take smart, wise, discerning, and judicious action, we can and will stop a cultural revolution in its tracks and become the beacon for freedom in this world once again. Thank you.